Fall is a great time for fire. Just thinking about the smell of burning leaves makes me want to grab some friends, find a fire pit, and eat too many marshmallows. But while some of us are huddling around a bonfire to stay warm, others are using fire for a different goal. Prescribed fire gets used throughout the year, especially in the warmer parts of the world, but it's most commonly seen in the spring and fall. So why is that? Well, practitioners generally burn during periods of time that they can prove have historically benefited the ecosystems that they're burning. In fact, practitioners will rarely use fire if they can't back it with some kind of research, whether that be word of mouth passed down from indigenous fire practitioners or scientific studies. These studies are done by people trying to push the field of fire forwards. People like Josh Cohen, an ecologist at the Michigan Natural Features Inventory. I was lucky enough to sit down with Josh this spring and ask him some questions about everything from growing season burns to using a wet potato sack to control fire. Yep, you heard me right, a wet potato sack. Luckily, Josh doesn't exactly support that practice, but he had some interesting thoughts on that and many other topics. Here's my interview with Josh. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to this week's episode of Learn Baby Burn. My name is Paul Mayer, administrator of the Michigan Prescribed Fire Council, and I'm sitting here today joined by Josh Cohen from the Michigan Natural Features Inventory. Josh works as an ecologist and has a bit of a background in fire that he's going to share with us today. Uh, Josh, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Paul. So uh, can you briefly explain to me, Josh, what it is ecologists do? So ecologists, and particularly ecologists that are part of the Natural Heritage Network, um, they focus on terrestrial ecosystems. So we look at why systems, ecosystems occur where they do in terms mm. of what are the biotic and abiotic factors that determine uh, where they occur in the landscape and we also examine their ecological integrity. So fire as a natural disturbance um, process is just part of what ecologists typically study when they look at ecosystems. Sure. You mentioned uh, part of uh, what you look at is why they occur, where they occur. Uh, is there some correlation between where they occur and the sorts of disturbances that you see? So if you look at broad patterns um, in terms of landform, there's often a correlation between fire-dependent systems and particular types of landform. So mm -hmm. large outwash plains on droughty soils, um, which we have a lot of in Michigan, they often are very conducive to the types of vegetation that carry fire, uh, the types of flat landscapes that carry fire as well. So you often have sandier soils where you have fire-dependent ecosystems. Interesting. And what's the relationship there? The sandy soils lend themselves to carrying certain types of plants that are more fire-prone? A lot of fire-prone vegetation, but they're um, drier. They hold less moisture. Interesting. So the drier a system is, the more it can generate the fuels that are conducive to burning. Right. Um, so a lot of these droughty systems have you know, coniferous uh, overstory, such as, as jack pine, or in the southern part of the state, oaks, and a lot of grasses and, and forbs that are uh, dry out and, and burn later in the season. Right. Um, another landscape position um, are bedrock glades. Um, so in the Upper Peninsula, you have these rock formations um, that 
also are very droughty and dry um, and are conducive to burning because they're high up and prone to uh, lightning fires. Mm -hmm. um, so they often have pines that get struck by lightning and then uh, fire uh, impacts the, the glade system. Are fire-dependent ecosystems dependent on fire because of the presence of fire, or by their design, do they invite fire in? I'm not sure. I mean, <laughs> species that occur within these particular types of environments develop adaptations that will promote fire, um, and then they also develop kind of a dependence on fire as well. So you're mentioning serotony. Um, so, you know, jack pine cones open up after... Um, after a burn, seeds open and pop after a fire, um, plants sprout after fire. But it's hard to know, you know, what came first. Of adaptations you can find in very hot systems. So you have semi-serotony in jack pine where you can get cones opening up even without fire. So we have a coastal barren system called Great Lakes Barrens occurring on sand dunes. Because of the heat on the dunes, the, the jack pine seeds will, will open up. I don't know what came first in terms of the adaptation. You mentioned that your first exposure to prescribed fire came while doing a School for Field Studies Wildlife Management program in Kenya. Uh, you learned about fire management in acacia savanna and assisted with a prescribed fire using a wet potato sack for suppression. Uh, speak a little bit about that, about that experience and the presentation of fire in that circumstance. So um, I had a friend from high school. We decided to go and do this program, and he was studying the use of uh, prescribed fire to promote uh, native grasses in um, Kenyan savanna. And as part of his research, we all got to help with the prescribed fire. Um, that was my first introduction to you know, what it was like to be on a prescribed fire, and um, it, it was exciting. Uh, <laughs> definitely got me as a 16-year-old interested in um, the field of research ecology, but um, I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> I wouldn't do it in a professional way in terms of, you know, controlling fire with a wet potato sack. Uh, it was intense. <laughs> Probably too much for high school students to be to be uh, addressing, but Professor Tolumbai was uh, a Zimbabwean who was uh, leading the research effort, and he was ahead of his time. That sounds crazy. <laughs> it just sounds, I didn't realize you were in high school when that occurred. Yes. Um, so what was the presentation of fire like there? I mean, I think like here in North America um, and throughout the world, fire has been used by uh, peoples as a tool. You know, at that time, I think this particular individual you know, had known from cultural experience that fire could be used to promote open conditions that were beneficial for various organisms um, in addition to the, the vegetation that they were trying to promote. Uh, promoting open ecosystems to promote forage for uh, wildlife is essentially what they were, were after. But I think that thinking about applying that was based on cultural experience, um, which, you know, we have the same kind of tradition here in North America as well, knowing that Native Americans were using fire to keep systems open for various reasons. It's very interesting how deeply ingrained our fear has become in 
such a short amount of time. It's very interesting. It's sad, I think. It's also understandable as a Californian iron, you know, fire risk is much different unless you're up in uh, Jack Pine country in Michigan. The idea of a wildfire is threatening to people's way of living in a lot of parts of the country. Um, and that has a lot to do with fire suppression over decades and a changing climate where uh, fires are becoming much more severe because of uh, prolonged drought periods and um, also increased um, rain events that increase fuel in the non-drought years. Um, so it's, it's complicated, uh, but it definitely, uh, you know, we need to keep promoting fire because it's a, a tool to reduce fire risk as well as uh, promote these important ecological attributes of these systems. So you mentioned uh, climate change. I wonder, in your perception, is fire becoming more of a nuisance because of climate change? You sort of allude to this, uh, talking about drought and the over-precipitation events. Um, is it becoming harder to control? Is it becoming uh, having less efficacy now that there is a less stable climate for it to occur within? I think it depends where you are. I think in Michigan, we're actually blessed with an opportunity in that, as I mentioned, fire risk is less mm. in comparison to other places. Um, we know that there's increase in temperature, increased drying. We're trending towards species that are going to be more adapted to drier ecosystems. Um, so I think we can use fire as a way um, to pave the way for these shifts and um, you know, use it as an adaptation strategy. Um, it definitely means that there will be parts of Michigan and parts of the country where, as you say, fire is going to be I wouldn't use the term nuisance, but a higher risk. And wherever it's a higher risk, that means that kind of consideration and application of prescribed fire is going to be harder to implement mm -hmm. um, because of public perception, but also because of the true risk of um, implementing this tool, which can cause lots of destruction. Yeah, you mentioned uh, having seen uh, the aftermath of, I believe, was the Sleeper Lake burn. What was that like, the experience of seeing the aftermath of such a great event? It was fascinating. So um, I went up there with a colleague, Brad Slaughter, who at the time was another ecologist, botanist with Michigan Natural Features Inventory. And we spent the day exploring the ecosystems that had been impacted by the fire. Um, we were looking at the impact in peatland ecosystems. Um, at the time we were writing, um, MNFI has these natural community abstracts mm -hmm. and we were writing abstracts on muskeg and pattern fen. Um, and we wanted to get on the ground information about how systems responded to fire. Um, and there's limited research um, and limited um, data on kind of what those impacts are. It was, you know, a day of meandering through these systems, so it was qualitative information, but it was still very informative to see kind of how the fire traveled through these peatlands and the uplands that intersect it. And um, also it was very instructive to see how ineffective the plow lines were that were, at the time, these plow lines were going right through some of our most pristine peatlands in the state. 
and they had zero effect. They would put a, you know, a bulldozer through, um, plow a peatland, and the fire would jump over the top or burn through the peat underneath. So that was interesting, and it was, uh, I think, useful for us to convey that information to the DNR in terms of, you know, we noticed this. Um, you're potentially introducing these linear disturbances that they will impact the hydrology of these peatlands. They also might uh, introduce invasive species as well. Some of the more interesting um, activity that we saw included observing the behavior as the fire passed through these transverse dunes. So there are these uh, low dune systems that occur in peatlands that support uh, pine forests, often uh, naturally regenerated red pine and white pine. Um, for some of the systems, there were surface fires. Um, those tended to be um, a little bit taller. Um, and then kind of the lower dune systems, it was more kind of catastrophic crown fire. Um, and, uh, and then we also came across a couple patches of cedar swamp that were completely burned in crown fire. So that was unusual to see. Um, that gives you a sense of kind of the intensity of the fire. Um, if it is hot enough uh, to burn through a, a forested swamp, it also tells you that, um, you know, the peats were dry enough. Um, this was definitely falling um, you know, a, long, a prolonged period of drought. Um, so those are just some thoughts on, on that experience. I think Brad and I, we were limping at the end of the day. Um, we probably covered uh, 15 miles or so of, of, of peatland and conifer swamp and these pine ridges as well. But it's one of my favorite landscapes in Michigan. I think these are ecosystems that people in Michigan don't often recognize as being a part of their state. I don't think that people think of Michigan as being a state that can carry fire, that needs fire, that has any sort of fire-dependent ecosystems in it. And here you've mentioned at least three or four separate communities that depend heavily on fire. Yeah, I mean, a good way of getting a sense of how fire-dependent Michigan is is to look at... Um, I mean, if I has a map, circa 1800 vegetation, which was based on uh, the notes of the original land surveyors. And so if you take a look at that map, you can see kind of the regions where there are fire-dependent systems. So in the south, your oak savannas and your prairie systems heading north, pine barrens, jack pine forest, red pine forest. Um, in the upper peninsula, I mentioned these, these peatlands. Um, they're not burning every year, um, historically. They were burning during drought periods, um, but they've got pine ridges um, throughout that are um, lightning strikes. Um, within that same county, um, probably one of my favorite places in Michigan is a vast muskeg that has old growth red pine ridges. And one of these red pines that we cored was 398 years old with fire scars, uh, multiple fire scars on the tree, and a visible lightning strike going down uh, the tree. And then to top it off, um, we dug around in the sand at the base of the tree and, and found fulgurites. Um, fulgurites are uh, sand. I guess it could be different types of mineral soil, but where I've seen it, it's sand that's been struck by lightning, and it solidifies, and you can see the root vesicles passing through. Um, so 
that's a, you know, a cool way of, you know, saying fire has been in these systems for, you know, thousands of years. Um, and then, as I mentioned, you know, you head to the West UP, the, those glades are another system that are, are fire dependent as well. The variety is kind of astonishing. The fact that you were able to find evidence of it tracing back 300 years, that's incredible to me. In addition to studying prescribed fire in Kenya, you also got your master's at Duke, which I understand there was at least a little bit of a fire slant to some of the stuff you were studying there. Uh, speak a little about the experience at Duke specifically and how it differed from your experience in Kenya as far as how the fire was presented, how ecology was presented and studied. So um, Duke um, has a school of the environment, the Nicholas School of the Environment, and um, there's a strong connection, or there was when I was there, there probably still is, to the Nature Conservancy um, in um, North Carolina. And there'd been a lot of research on um, fire-dependent ecosystems in North Carolina because there was a big focus on um, some rare species associated with some fire-dependent systems in, in um, the coastal plain of the Carolinas. So longleaf pine savanna and the red cockaded woodpecker also gopher tortoise. So there was, you know, I don't remember how long that research had predated my studies at Duke, but there'd been some long-standing work looking at the use of fire to promote these savanna systems. So you mentioned in talking to me earlier that uh, a big part of your job is studying fire effects and sort of the uh, results of burning, the results that burning has on specific ecosystems. I've heard of a lot of different methods of data collection for different organizations. I'm wondering what you guys do to collect data. What sort of, what are you looking for when you examine a plot after a burn, before a burn, during a burn? Uh, what kind of effects are you looking for and what sort of data are you collecting? So... A lot of what we do right now is, is qualitative. Um, I'm hoping to have more of a quantitative push in the future in terms of how we evaluate ecological integrity. So when we evaluate natural communities that have been identified for survey, we're looking at floristic composition, vegetative structure, soils, hydrology, uh, the sign of you know different ecological processes, so wind throw, fire, um, impacts from beaver. Um, we're also looking at various threats, so threats of an invasive species, um, anthropogenic threats, um, deer herbivory. So we look at all of those things in a qualitative way. We haven't had uh, specific projects where we've looked at uh, the impacts of fire in a quantitative way. Sure. Um, one thing that um, we're looking at currently is evaluating different ecosystems that are um, fire dependent and developing metrics that you can evaluate using remote sensing. Um, so using drones, collecting high resolution imagery, um, and then using some kind of uh, classification, automated, cl automated classification. So we're working right now with um, a company called Michigan Aerospace, and we're looking at um, using deep learning algorithms or convolutional neural networks. Um, so what I envision, um, and we've experimented with this in terms of looking at invasive species in open coastal ecosystems, 
Um, we've looked at Lake Plain Prairie, for example, and St. John's Marsh and Algonac State Park. Those are both um, places that support fire-dependent Lake Plain Prairie. And we've used this technique to create these probability maps that show the density of invasive species, invasive shrubs within these Lake Plain Prairies. Um, and we've developed these maps for before treatment and after treatment, treatment in this case being cutting and herbiciding. Um, but I'd like to implement this methodology to evaluate the effects of fire. Um, so a simple metric in these Lake Plain Prairies, which are forb and grass uh, dominated, would be to look at how fire reduces uh, tall shrub cover. Um, and so um, that's an example of kind of a quantitative metric that I'd like to see implemented. Monitoring is often one of the most labor-intensive, cost-prohibitive components of conservation work, and it, it just often doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen with the frequency that it needs to happen. Um, but, you know, in terms of kind of the basics of what you look at post-fire, it depends on what your ecosystem is. Um, you know, if you're burning in the oak system and you want to know how well you're doing in terms of reducing um, your mesophytic invaders and promoting regeneration, you can do understory plots to evaluate your oak and pine regeneration and evaluate how well you're doing knocking back things like red maple and sassafras. Mm -hmm. um, you can look at diversity metrics in when you're burning something like a prairie fan or uh, some of your prairie systems. It's really interesting. I think the drone technology is so useful because it seems like it's combining qualitative and quantitative analysis. They're able to turn these sort of anecdotal uh, pieces of evidence, visually scanning and seeing how many invasives are left, and turn it into data. Now is the perfect time for us to start juicing monitoring because so many people are trying to do it, but there's no standardized framework to work within. So if a few people get together and create that framework, if you and the people at uh, the Aeronautics... Uh, what Michigan is Aerospace Michigan Corporation. Michigan Aerospace <laughs> Corporation. Uh, start working to create some sort of a standardized algorithm that people can use for their drones, this deep learning network can be spread and pass different practitioners and used for broader analysis. I think that's a great objective to create that thing. So they're working towards developing a website that's accessible to the public. Um, so part of building this methodology is annotating hundreds of thousands of images and hundreds of thousands of, so you're essentially ground-truthing species on the aerial imagery. Mm -hmm. So you create a digital data library that you can feed into your neural network to teach, um, teach these computers essentially to classify species. Um, and so um, once we have these digital data libraries built, um, you know, a, a website could be used for lots of different practitioners, um, either to submit their imagery um, or to upload their imagery, do their own annotation of that imagery, and then see how the neural network classifies uh, the site in terms of the, the species of target species of interest, in terms of being cost um, e efficient. Drones um, are becoming less and less expensive visual spectrum imagery is accessible 
that you know these drones come with high-end cameras. Right. Don't need to pay a helicopter to hover over your plot for yep. forty minutes. Yeah, that's fantastic. Making that accessible, I think, is so great. So you mentioned invasive species management in this. Uh, it seems like almost the entire goal of building this neural network is to have the computer be able to differentiate between unwanted and wanted species. Uh, talk a little bit about the role fire plays in helping invasives. Uh, have you seen it be useful? Has it only been useful in specific circumstances? Or across the board, is fire a good thing to use to help uh, hack back at invasives? Well, it's, uh, it's complicated, I think, for... Um the majority of cases, it's uh, a critical component of ecosystem management, and a component of that ecosystem management is controlling invasive species. But it has to be used, fire uh, has to be used um, in a way that it will be effective. Um, so if you burn certain times a year, you're not going to get the results that you're hoping for sometimes. Uh, I'm a big proponent of um, varying the seasonality of burning, varying the intensity of burning. Um, and so that the impacts to these invasive shrubs in particular, um, they're more effective the more severe your burn is. Um, you want to wait until you're, um, until the, the plant has leafed out um, so that you're not burning when there are reserves held in the roots. Um, a lot of times prescribed burns are occurring in the spring um, and those burns are easier to implement um, with our current um, kind of the current bureaucracy of burning I would say um, but they're less effective in terms of uh, knocking back these undesirable, both native and non-native, uh, woody species. Um, there's also invasives that if you burn, you're going to actually promote them. Um, so narrow-leaf cattail is an example. Um, so you need kind of a, a holistic approach where you use all tools available um, in your management toolbox. Um, so if you've got narrow-leaf cattail invading a uh, prairie fen and you want to control it, you got to do some herbiciding before you implement your burning. You sort of touched on this, and this might be, uh, like you said, it might rely more on a holistic approach than a sort of broad categorization like this, but in general, is there a correlation between burn season and the burn intensity that you want for the effects? Growing season burns sounds like you need that high intensity to be able to burn out the whole plant, whereas maybe spring burning, where the only goal is reducing fuel loading, a lighter intensity burn works just fine. Yeah, I think you're right that, um, you know, it has to do with fuel loads, like you said, lower intensity in the spring and sometimes in the fall and winter as well. Higher intensity growing season, you could even wait for some droughty conditions, mm. um, but then you're increasing fire risk, obviously. So there are trade-offs. Do you recommend growing season burning? It sounds like you're very interested in it. Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, we wrote a report for Fort Custer maybe back in 2009 and one of our little catchphrases and management re recommendations was pyrodiversity begets biodiversity. So vary your intensity, uh, vary your seasonality. So fire is you know, inherently a stochastic occurrence. It's a, a random event. So the more random we are with our application of fire, Obviously, in a um, 
thoughtful and logical way, <laughs> I think the better for the ecosystem that we're managing. Uh, if we are continually burning at the same time of year, we're going to be benefiting you know, a subset of species as opposed to the whole ecosystem. It's very interesting. So in addition to doing this deep learning drone project, you're also doing this prescribed fire needs assessment in the state of Michigan. I'll speak a little bit about that, uh, the organization of it, the purpose behind it. So this has been um, a lot of fun to um, work on this project, and I've been working on it with uh, colleagues Clay Wilton and Helen Anander, who's a, our GIS analysis, and uh, Clay is an, another ecologist. And we're working with the Wildlife Division of the Department of Natural Resources. Um, our sponsors are Mark Sargent and Chris Hoving and uh, Mark Monroe, and they're asking us to evaluate the need for fire on uh, state lands, and this is the ecological need for fire on state lands, uh, by developing a model um, that looks at various ecological variables at multiple scales to assign every stand within their, um, they have a, a, a data set that um, is essentially wall-to-wall -wall vegetative mapping of state lands. Um, at, um, and so they want a value of a fire ecological need uh, score for each stand um, in their in the areas that they manage. And so we've developed these um, they're a weighted geographic overlay where we assign um, different scores based on the different ecological variables for each stand. So we look at landscape scale factors landform, uh, historical vegetation, uh, soils. Um, we look at kind of stand level attributes, so cover type, um, fire return interval, fire dependency, and we look at within stand variables. Um, so what are the actual species that um, are within these systems, including rare species? And based on those variables, we give a score uh, to the stand. We weight some of those variables higher um, than others. So for example, um, a frequent return interval or return interval is a variable that we give kind of a, a very high score. Um, and then you sum all those scores and you kind of derive this uh, prescribed fire need score. Um, and you can take that information and um, if you've got an area that you're interested in uh, a particular game area, you can generate maps so you can spatialize that information and you can see where uh, in a particular area there's the most need for fire. Um, and then th this also gives managers um, kind of a way of seeing how much acreage um, should they be burning in a given year. Um, you know, what are the highest priorities in the state? Um, it helps them potentially make some very difficult decisions about when and where to burn. Um, so it's been a, a fun process, um, a lot of research in terms of the different fire return intervals for the different ecosystems, um, also a lot of research on the specific species that are the components of these ecosystems in terms of what's their fire tolerance, what's their fire dependence, right. how does the presence of a particular species in a stand impact uh, the need for that system to burn. Um, and so we're 
we've completed uh, a year of research um, and we've developed these um, maps and scores for southern Michigan. Um, and, and now we're moving uh, to northern Michigan. I'm in the midst of evaluating stands on state forest lands in northern Michigan, and we're going through the same process. Uh, we're also uh, developing, um, in addition to state lands, we're developing a model that will look at the entire state. So we've, um, we don't have stand level data to do that, but um, we've looked at kind of the landscape level attributes and have assigned scores to hexagons within the state um, using some broader scale uh, cover type data as our um, a way of getting at fire return interval. So we've looked at land fires vegetation condition class and crosswalk that to our natural community uh, types, which um, enables us to assign a, a prescribed fire return interval. Mm -hmm. So we have maps for southern Michigan as well, and we'll do the same for northern Michigan. Very interesting. That return interval, uh, you mentioned it has one of the higher scores in the needs assessment as far as determining how important fire is for a specific area. Does having a longer return interval mean that fire is perhaps less important in those ecosystems, or does it simply mean that it takes longer for the need to build up to the point where fire needs to be reintroduced? Uh, that's a, an excellent point. Um, we're we're saying that the more frequent a fire is in a system, the higher there is a need for uh, application of fire um, to maintain you know, functionality, to maintain species and structure. For example, a prairie has a very high need for fire. That doesn't mean that an oak system um, doesn't have need for fire. It just has less of a need on um, and you know, a longer return interval. If you don't burn a prairie, it will convert mm -hmm. to not a prairie. Mm -hmm. If you don't burn an oak system, it will change, it will stay as an oak system. You have more time, <laughs> you have more time to get things right, right. Uh, with kind forgiving. of these systems that have longer return intervals than these systems that have shorter return intervals. Very interesting. Forgiving. I didn't realize that prairies convert into not prairie if not given fire. So uh, Curtis, um, who wrote Vegetation of Wisconsin, um, was doing plot sampling and evaluation of ecosystems across Wisconsin. And he was noting that um, these savanna systems that he was studying, depending on soil moisture, um, they could convert to forest in 10 to 20 years without wow. fire. Wow. So it, it can happen rapidly. Um, there are some prairie systems that will maintain that open condition based on droughty soils um, or frost pockets. So we have a system called dry sand prairie, which is kind of our most prevalent prairie in Michigan. And it is fire dependent, but it also has kind of drought and frost as components that help keep it open. Um, and then there's some other prairie systems that have fluctuating hydrology, so that high water levels in the, in the spring, um, they can help keep the, the system open. So there's some prairies that will stay open because of other factors, hydrology, drought, frost, for example.
but there's that potential for a prairie to be lost, which they're already one of the most endangered communities in Michigan, if not in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, interesting. So fire is truly integral to their existence. I truly did not know that. You say that a lot of the work that you do as an ecologist is making these recommendations to landowners, to land conservancies or land trusts or different organizations. How open are people to hearing about fire and how open are they to using it ultimately? Uh, I think very receptive. Um, A lot of kind of Michigan Natural Features inventory, a lot of our clients are um, resource managers that can and will use fire. We work a lot with the Parks and Recreation Division. They have been burning for decades. Um, and so they're very receptive of kind of recommendations about burning. Um, that said, you know, state agencies are restricted in what they can do. So there's less flexibility often with when they can burn sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've been hammering home for many years. Um, you know, vary the seasonality of burning. Um, easier to say than it is to do. For someone in my position um, who's not implementing fire, it's a great experience to do the work. You know, if you're going to make recommendations, it's probably a good idea to know what you're recommending. Um, so one of the things I like to recommend, and this was based on experience at Fort Custer, was the bigger the burn, the better. And also use as many natural fire breaks as you can. Use existing fire breaks when you can, because the less you disturb soils within these systems, the less you know potential threat there is from invasives that can come in uh, following the fire. Um, well, thank you, Josh. Thank you very yeah. much for uh, talking to us. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Learn Baby Burn is edited and produced by me, Paul Mayer. All music is composed and performed by me, Paul Mayer. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get notified of future episodes, and check us out online at firecouncil.org, as well as on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for burning some time with us. We'll see you next time. Mm